Humans are social creatures. When we interact with the world, we are usually surrounded by other fellow humans. Do our social interactions change over time? Do we get lonelier as we get older? This is Under the Cortex. I am Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with the Association for Psychological Science. To answer these questions, I have with me Samia Akder Khan from King's College London. She is the author of an article published in Perspectives examining the loneliness of older adults. Samia, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thank you for having me. So I would like to start with a simple question. How do psychologists define loneliness? Yeah, so commonly loneliness is defined as the discrepancy between your expected social relationships and your actual social relationships. So that means we have certain expectations for um, our social interactions. We expect somebody to call us, for example. And then we have reality, which is our actual relationships. And if the person doesn't call us, our expectations are violated and may lead to loneliness. So it's really a very cognitive definition of loneliness. Mm-hmm. And I hear that it is very subjective as well, right? It is about our expectations then. Totally. Yeah. It's very subjective. And that's the difference to social isolation, which is commonly um, used as the same term as loneliness. But social isolation really means being physically alone. So you might have many people around you and still feel lonely. On the other hand, you might be alone and not feel lonely. Mm-hmm. So are there cultural differences in perception of loneliness? Yeah, that's a difficult question because obviously we have many different cultures in the world and um, most research comes from higher income countries and, and cultures in Europe and the States, for example. And we recently conducted a systematic review of what loneliness actually means in low middle income countries, which is not published yet. But um, there we see that loneliness is also seen as like a violation of expectations. So people expect certain things and then when they're not met these expectations, then people do feel lonely. However, what we what we found in this in this review is that loneliness was very closely tied to rejection. So a feeling of rejection that was specific to loneliness um, that we maybe don't see as much in other cultures. But of course expectations change um, depending on culture and context of people. Culture can affect our expectations that we have, but also the likelihood of them meet, being met. So, for example, if we compare socially embedded cultures, we might expect that people are around us all the time and we live in busy environments, whereas then move to a country where people live alone more or where it's less socially embedded, then we have um, higher likelihood of a violated expectation for being together with other people, right? Right. So the way we feel rejection, the way we perceive ourselves within our expectations. Yeah, that is uh, remarkable. So let me ask you another question. So why is it important to define loneliness across lifespan? We know from research that loneliness is something that people experience across the lifespan. Loneliness peaks like twice the prevalence um, across the lifespan. So in younger adulthood around the age of 20 and then again in older age. So we are at a very different stage of the lifespan when we're around 20 and maybe establishing our new identities in our lives, finding our career as opposed to being older and having lived our lives already, or most of it focusing more on other things such as generativity, so contributing 
meaningfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in your article, you define six key social relationship expectations about loneliness, right? So you have used definitions from different scientific disciplines. Could you tell our listeners what these six expectations are and why you wanted to incorporate multiple disciplines in your research? Of course, yeah. So the Social Relationship Expectations Framework, or SRE, is something we developed um, because we were we knew this definition of loneliness is a violation of expectations, but there wasn't really a defined framework or theory about what we expect from our relationships. So we identified six different expectations, um, which are proximity, so having social contacts available and close by, support, feeling cared for and able to rely on others. We have intimacy, which means feeling close to a person, understood and listened to, and fun, so sharing interests and enjoyable experiences. And these first four expectations um, are really incorporated into learningness literature, into the scales, and are really considered in interventions as well. But then we have two expectations that we define as maybe more relevant in older age and also not so regarded yet in learningness research or interventions. And one of them is generativity, so which is a common psychological concept defined by Ericsson, um, where we have or expect having opportunities to contribute meaningfully. So um, leaving a legacy, helping somebody in a meaningful way. And the other one is respect. And what we mean by respect is more so feeling valued and appreciated, but also actively included. So these are the six expectations that we define in the SRE framework. Mm-hmm. And um, I noticed that you are primarily working with global samples. Can you tell us why you had this choice in your research program? Sure, yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, I think most research comes from weird countries like Henrik defined, and we've known this for a long time. And I just want to clarify something. So in psychology, we talk a lot about weird sampling issue that you mentioned. So WEIRD stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. And majority of psychological research uh, comes from this category. Yeah, approximately 96% of psychological research is done with samples from higher income countries, um, which leaves like a really large population from our world out of psychological research and our knowledge about um, how humans think and behave, um, including loneliness. My research focus on Focusing more globally really started when I moved to Myanmar in 2018, where I did research on loneliness in older adults. And that really sparked my interest for doing more research in an area of global mental health, which is a relatively new field and interdisciplinary field. And so now I'm at the Center for Global Mental Health at King's College London, which really focuses on um, mental health interventions, mental health research globally and specifically in lower middle income settings. I mean, I think personally, I think that's really important to um, include different cultures, especially where there is a lack of mental health um, research and um, interventions, but also funding and structural barriers to doing that research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So diversifying our samples in psychological research is very important. It is fascinating that you are doing something about that and you are using more global uh, samples. So um, what are your uh, suggestions to our senior listeners? What is the best way for them to cope with their loneliness? 
Yeah, again, talking about cultural differences, I think there are different coping strategies that people use in different um, occasions or countries or contexts there. And, and then it's just really hard to suggest something that wouldn't be possible in a different context. But I can maybe share some work of mine from Myanmar, where we interviewed people about how they, older people, about how they coped with loneliness. And there was basically a two-step process to simplify it, one of which was first accepting that one is lonely. So really realizing I am lonely at this moment. It may be a transient state. It might not last forever, but at this very moment, I am lonely because some people are in denial of loneliness or maybe because it's stigmatized as well, don't feel comfortable in actually seeing themselves as a lonely person. And acceptance can really be facilitated by meditation. It can be facilitated by praying. And then the next step would be not to stay in that state of acceptance and just being lonely and maybe also in self-pity in some cases. This is what older people taught me. But then to fight against loneliness. <laughs> so there are obviously many different ways people can fight actively, cope with loneliness and change that state once they're aware that they are lonely. And one of the things could be using the SRE framework. So these six different expectations um, and identifying which expectations are actually met and which ones are not met. So we might be in a situation where we find, okay, I have people around me, proximity is met, I have very close relationships, intimacy is met. Um, I do provide a lot of care, generativity is met, but I don't feel respected because, for example, I do provide a lot of care work, but nobody appreciates me for it, right? I might have been working at home my whole life, as a doing housework and care work, um, I've never gotten money for it, so no economic value, no economic appreciation, but also no appreciation from my partner or from my family. So um, in this instance, one opportunity to talk to people about this issue and actually asking them to maybe see that value of care provided as one example. So I think it would really help to identify first which expectations aren't met and then try and find out what you could do about these different expectations not being met. Yeah. And I want to ask you for our final question, how the younger generations can help with uh, minimizing the challenges of loneliness in the older generation? And what are the barriers to that? What are cross-cultural differences? Yeah, that's a good question and a really important one because I feel that intergenerational contact and is really something, in, at least in... Our culture, so I'm talking about Germany here, the UK and the US, is really not very common anymore. So we don't really share spaces with older people as young adults um, and vice versa, as much as this happens maybe in Myanmar or in different Southeast Asian countries. So the contact itself is so important for older people and also for younger people, it's really like a reciprocal learning experience um, where both people can benefit. So older people giving advice and sharing life advice and, and stories, um, but also learning from younger people, for example, about technology, about current issues that are relevant that keep them young and fit and involved. So sharing spaces or having that ability to, to create intergenerational contact where you can um, is, I think, an amazing opportunity to realize many of these expectations. So that could be one thing, just to engage in spaces or create spaces where you can have more intergenerational contact. Yeah, 
I definitely agree. And there are definitely cross-cultural differences there too, right? So the way we take care of our elderly is very different in a Western setting compared to an Eastern setting. Yeah. Um, Samia, anything else uh, that you would like to add? Yeah, so maybe I would like to touch upon talking about global research and global engagement. I think it's really important um, for listeners from the US or, or researchers to hear about the barriers that we have to doing research in, in global settings. And I would just like to highlight two of them, which is one, the problems of ethical approval in research. So um, journals, academic journals expect to have ethical approvals from international review boards and from institutions to publish their work. And many times there is a lot of meaningful research done in low middle income countries, but then as we have over 30 countries in conflict, we can't always get ethical approval from these institutions. So researchers there really rely on ethical approval from um, higher income countries and collaborating with higher income scholars who are then also PIs usually of the project, even though the work is really conducted by local researchers. So that's one huge barrier to actually accessibility to that kind of research. And then on the other hand, it's the grant and funding problem for actually directing grant funding to low middle income countries in conflict settings such as Myanmar. So um, colleagues of mine have received a grant and then they couldn't actually access the money um, for the grant and conducting the research because the money couldn't be sent to a conflict setting, which is governed by a military regime. So it's really a huge obstacle to conducting research and meaningful psychological research or mental health research in low and middle income countries, specifically in context settings. And they're like really important barriers, I think, that we as psychologists, but also, yeah, as associations or publishers need to maybe find solutions to of how people can actually publish their work or receive funding. It continues to be an unequal power balance because scholars from low and middle income countries just have these huge barriers to publishing their work um, and that obviously is sad for the world um, of research and psychology because we just keep continuing to publish the easy stuff. So meaning where it's easy um, to conduct research, where it's easy to get funding and where it's also easy to publish because we have IRBs um, at our institutions. Remarkable points. Thank you very much. So what you are saying is, is a... Uh, as the field of psychology, we are philosophically against the, the weird sampling issue, but um, are we doing everything we can to support the researchers who want to go against it and uh, try to diversify the population samples? Yes, the barriers you counted are very important ones, and hopefully we are going to see adjustments in grants, in journals, and um the standards uh, for accepting uh, people's uh, work to be published. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Samia, thank you very much for uh, joining uh, us today. It was a lovely conversation. I personally learned a lot. Uh, I wish you best of luck with your uh, research and uh, I hope we stay in touch. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you.
This is Özge Gürcanlı, Fischerbaum with APS, and I have been speaking to PhD candidate Samia Akhtar Khan from King's College London. If you want to know more about this research, visit psychologicalscience.org.